Hello and welcome to the HSJ Health Check podcast. I'm Annabelle Collins and this week I'm joined by HSJ editor Alistair McClellan and fellow senior correspondent Nick Carding. This week on the podcast we are turning our attention to what the restoration of the NHS in a post-Covid world could look like. Alistair's leader article published earlier this week focused on what the next six months could hold for the health service and set out various predictions. I think, first of all, it would be helpful, Alistair, to take listeners over the main points you discussed in the piece. Hello, everybody. Um, I, I hope you and yours are all well and um, uh, that um, whatever endeavour uh, you're involved in is going well in these challenging times. So uh, HSJ has deliberately avoided making many predictions about uh, the uh, COVID world and the post-COVID world on the basis that um, uh, uh, events have been moving so fast and uh, um, uh, the factors have been changing so significantly that we thought it was right to devote our resources to, um, uh, to covering those rather than speculating about the future. But um, uh, we have the privilege to speak to most of the most senior people um, uh, within the health service and I thought it was time to try and pull together the conversations that I and uh, colleagues had had into some kind of sense of a roadmap for the service going forward. Um, there is um, a range of pressures on the service uh, on the NHS to begin to uh, increase the amount of what we'll call routine work often it isn't routine but i think you'll you'll know what i mean um and um both from the government and particularly from um uh, uh charities the many many patient charities are all perfectly understanding lobbying for their services for the services that serve their particular um uh group uh, to be brought back on uh, line as quickly as possible. Uh, a lot of people in the service are nervous about that. Uh, they fear false expectations being created that the service will be able to return to uh, normality much quicker than they think it will. Uh, there are different levels of nervousness at different levels of, uh, uh, um, of the service. I think it's worth before we plunge into talking about the factors that will um, impact on the services return to normality to just think uh, which which are largely about capacity, though not entirely about capacity, is also to think about demand. The big unanswered question, the question that still is is, is really to be unanswered is what demand will look like in the next six months. Will it return to the same level as it existed uh, in January, February, um, adjusted for seasonal um, uh, uh, variation? Uh, for example, with emergency uh, A&E attendances, we saw a massive drop off um, uh, in attendances, about half of which has come back now. Uh, but at the height of the drop-off, um, as could reasonably be expected, but still interesting to know, the uh, proportion of minor uh, tendencies that weren't happening were 14 to 1 compared to those of major attendances. So 
obviously the major attendances will um, uh, will continue. But will the minor will the minor attendances um, uh, uh, return, or have because of this, uh, uh, because people didn't want to go to an A and E, um, has that has that flicked some kind of switch in people's head um, with electric referrals? Um, obviously, they've been down significantly, and there is significant reason to be worried about. Uh, that in a number of areas. But for as long as I've been HSJ editor, and I first became HSJ editor in April 2002, I have been told, for example, that a significant proportion, the percentage de uh, depends on who you're talking to, but a significant proportion of um, patients in orthopaedic wards don't need to be there. And that with a better provision of physiotherapy or um, uh, um, um, earlier intervention in some kind of way that they could avoid operations. Um, now, it may or may not be true, but orthopaedic surgeons have, have told me that. So, you know, I think it um, and they love to operate. So it probably is true. Um, and now that um, you've got as a referring clinician, you know that when you refer someone, you're putting them on a waiting list, particularly if it's a, a condition which is not going to be treated in any kind of emergency way, um, that you might be putting on the waiting list that is, you know, nine months, a year, who knows where we might be in the autumn uh, uh, period. And maybe that's an added incentive to explore other ways of uh, addressing that particular uh, 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 concern. And of course, if they do that, then the waiting list doesn't isn't so long. And so maybe the behaviours don't change as much. But I just wanted to stress how how a lot of people at the centre are saying, are looking at these predictions of 10 million people on the elective waiting list and going, hold on a second, that depends whether demand that depends on demand being what it was before the uh, the pandemic, uh, maybe it were, uh, and whether all follow up appointments, for example, are followed up are actually when we know that many follow up appointments aren't necessary or could be handled in, in other ways. So sorry, bit of a ramble to, be, to begin with, but I think it's important contextualization. So I thought I'd talk about the return to normality, whatever we want to call it, um, uh, the reset, uh, the NHS Confederation calls it, in three, it's four areas. Um, the importance of the testing programme, changes in staff roles and behaviours, uh, with an emphasis on infection control, uh, and uh, the change of um, uh, uh, service uh, service models. Uh, and then very briefly at the end, we might talk about some of the broader policy legislative changes that were set up in um, in advance of uh, uh, that were in process before the pandemic uh, um, uh, came around and may now be significantly influenced by the, um, the pandemic and what has happened. So the testing programme. The testing programme and I want to stress here I'm talking about the tests rather than the tracing. The testing programme, it's 
um, comprehensiveness, it's um, um, uh, it's efficiency, speed of turnaround is something, is very, very important to the speed of the speed and the nature of uh, uh, the return of the NHS to uh, uh, normality. Uh, the more tests that are done, uh, the better the quality of uh, the warning that um, the, uh, the programme will be able to provide to the NHS that there has been uh, or there is about to be a spike in coronavirus cases. Um, uh, the more granular they can be around uh, pinning it down to particular um, uh, groups of patients or organisations or areas. And that's important because the more sensitive the testing programme, the less capacity they have to hold in reserve and uh, the less, uh, the fewer services that are displaced by having to hold that capacity um, uh, in, in, in reserve. And that reserve capacity is a sort of, um, it, it, it's our, it exists in two sort of uh, um, uh, elements. One is a sort of, you know, a sort of rough rule of thumb. We need to keep 10% of beds or whatever, etc., um, available just in case. But it's also a sort of, um, uh, on a more granular basis. For example, in parts of um, the southwest, um, uh, in Cornwall. Um, uh, Dorset and Devon, there is almost there are almost no COVID cases at the moment. Or sorry, there was no no people in hospital with COVID. Um, so in theory, you could absolutely release lots of um, uh, capacity there. But we have seen in past that around the areas around Bristol, there have been some. Uh, there was in Western, of course, there was an uptick. So probably. Devon and Dorset a bit too far away, but you get my point. You might need to keep capacity in reserve in an area which has relatively low COVID load to help out a neighbouring area that might have a higher COVID load. Maybe we'll see that with what's happening in Northamptonshire at the moment. Um, so the more granular the testing is, the more you're able to make both choices as a sort of national level, what, what is the sort of benchmark reserve capacity bit, but also the more flexibly local that you can you can be. Uh, and perhaps, Nick, it's a good time to ask you sort of where we are on the on that question about the, the, the testing programme. What is the level of activity going on at the moment? And also perhaps what would be particularly interesting known is there's been a rush for numbers, as we have reported <laughs> over the past, uh, as opposed to a sort of careful attempt to get something which allows you to um, build a system which can be used for reporting and analysis. So basically, well, where we are with the testing programme, currently testing capacity as of the latest update stood at about 220,000 tests, but interestingly, um, the number of tests that have been carried out is dropping for the last five days. It's been dropping down through the sort of uh, from 160,000 to 100, 
10, 105,000 yesterday. Um, so clearly there is um, a lot of capacity and not that many tests being carried out, which is interesting in itself. So there's really uh, two things I think just of note that I'll talk about quickly. The first is that the NHS has been asked to increase its own um, PCR testing capacity. So those are the tests that are carried out by uh, taking swabs um, and samples from patients. So previously the NHS, or currently sorry, the NHS is doing around anything from 30 to 40,000 of these tests a day. The new ask is now to do uh, are just under 90,000 tests a day, which represents quite a big uh, increase in capacity. And I think there's uh, a sort of a realistic expectation among national leaders that not all labs will be able to achieve that but in asking labs to try to achieve it they'll be able to better identify which labs um, aren't able to 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 get that um, to, to achieve that uh, capacity and so they can focus their attentions on those labs specifically when it comes to supplying them with reagents and and other pieces of equipment so that's um, that'll be interesting to follow how that goes and then the second thing which I think is is interesting um, is that we're now seeing uh, a much more sort of targeted approach um, which is away from getting the numbers up and it's more about getting the right kind of testing uh, into uh, hospitals so you know you've got the PCR tests which currently are being turned around in around 12 to 15 hours in labs but there are now very strong efforts being made to try and uh, uh, increase that time much faster so that you can turn around testing anything from one to four hours and that's going to clearly have a, a massive um, potentially massive impact on um, on patients coming emergency patients being able to test them to make sure that they, they're COVID negative or COVID positive um, there's also work going on to um, deliver tests that don't require uh, processing in labs, a uh, test that can sort of um, give you the result within half an hour, if a bit like almost like a, a pregnancy test is the, is the uh, comparison one uh, person told me about. You can sort of just provide a sample onto a strip and wait half an hour and it will give you the result. So there's much more now focus on getting those kinds of different tests. So, so, so Nick, I mean, the question I, that was in my mind was, what effort is there going to attempt? Is there going into attempt that the testing, rather than simply volume, is actually representative? So that they're testing enough people in 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 each place, um, uh, uh, so that they could get a good representative picture. Because if you just drive at numbers, you could be doing loads and loads of testing in one place, much more testing that you actually need for the testing part of the the sort of analytical uh, monitoring part of it and other parts of the um, uh, uh, country could be doing much fewer tests and therefore effectively we the service develops blind spots and speaking to somebody senior uh, a couple of days ago they were saying that uh, uh, trust chief executives have been saying to them that those with their own labs felt sort of really confident that they knew what the situation was uh, in terms of coronavirus in their own locality. Those without their own labs who had to rely on other people to send results back felt much more nervous and therefore much more cautious in terms of um, uh, releasing capacity and returning services. Yeah, um, so I think you know that that's what this next piece of work is all about is trying to make sure you get the right kind of tests 
to the areas that are most in need. Um, so it's not necessarily about giving every lab a blanket number, num numerical target to hit. It's more about where you have potential hotspots emerging. Um, if you see a, if you start to see a spike of um, COVID patients potentially, you then make sure you you um, put your supply of rapid turnaround tests to that hospital because then you'll be able to tell much faster whether or not um, this is a, a serious spike and, and its potential, you know, uh, risk of, of uh, a significant outbreak. So, you know, previously uh, up to now, we, we haven't really had that um, that possibility because the focus has been on PCR tests. The turnaround time has been quite slow. And so you can only respond locally when you have got, you know, um, when you see the numbers coming through. But the way that they're focusing in now is we need to be able to put in place these tests that can be turned around faster, which will help um, tell sooner if there is a, an outbreak happening in hospitals such as Western, which of course was the most recent example, and, and in Northamptonshire as well. Okay, th thanks very much. I mean, it is, um, the NHS is about to enter what is called phase three. So phase one was dealing with the uh, um, uh, with all the, uh, building the spare capacity in Nightingales. Phase two was the initial exploration of uh, returning uh, 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 um, uh, returning some services. And phase three is meant to be this full-on plan uh, to to get things up and running and going again. And um, phase three had begun um, was expected to begin sometime in June, or the guidance was expected to go out in June. Uh, we now believe um, it will go out in July. Uh, and the reason that it will go in, out in July is because, as I think Nick has uh, so eloquently described, there's still a hell of a lot to do on getting the testing programme to a level where it can provide that robust level of warning that the service needs to begin to release, um, um, uh, release capacity. So the second thing I was going to talk about is infection control. Now, there's obviously uh, a lot. Um, uh, infection control is a wide ranging area. I want particularly to focus on uh, staff, uh, uh, the workforce elements side of it. There is, of course, a sort of technological side of it. Uh, but I thought I'd just particularly uh, focus on the workforce side of it. Um, and I thought I'd particularly focus on it because of um, uh, uh, the row that was created last uh, week by um, uh, Matt Hancock announcing pretty much out of the blue um, uh, that um, uh, staff would be required uh, to wear masks, uh, surgical masks, uh, within hospitals in all settings and uh, visitors uh, and outpatients attendees would be required to wear masks, not surgical masks, but masks. Uh, and to talk about the staff side of thing at the moment, um, the um, uh, uh, we had reported earlier, they didn't get much attention, though I used the opportunity of the announcement to bring it back to people's attention that there is real concern with the within the NHS about staff-to-staff uh, -staff, um, uh, infection. To put it bluntly, staff are not now, given there's, uh, that the PPE situation is much better, catching COVID from patients, 
they're catching it from other staff and they're catching it not in clinical areas where our practice is well established, but in social areas. And so that's one element of the, the sort of infection control kind of things. The second thing is the sheer, um, uh, if you're operating in a COVID hot environment, you have to be much more careful with your infection control. Uh, and you have to do a lot more deep cleaning and you have to be taking off, putting on and putting, take, putting on and taking off uh, protective equipment and et cetera, et cetera. And there are certain types of NHS activity, uh, diagnostics, cataract surgery, et cetera, which are sort of dependent on high activity. It's how they, it's how they work and how the, sort of the rest of the system works. And um, I just wonder, um, uh, Annabelle, what your sense is of how ready the workforce are to adopt this new way of working, whether they whether it will be uh, um, it will be seen as something that needs to be done and therefore people will get on with it or whether people will see it as uh, uh, something that um, uh, is an annoyance uh, and that there may be some sort of short um, short cutting uh, mm. around it. Uh, we certainly have seen that in social areas, NHS staff have not, um, uh, and there are plenty of reasons for this, I'm not suggesting they're doing this out of any kind of thoughtlessness, um, have not uh, always observed uh, the social distancing, hence the problem with staff to staff infection. But I just wonder on a sort of cultural workforce behavioural side of things, how you think this this new world, uh, uh, the kind of issues this new world might create for the workforce? So I think from speaking to the workforce, there is quite a lot of um, frustration in terms of how the guidance changes quite quickly. So, um, you know, the, the guidance around needing to wear a mask, even in non-COVID areas, I think it's, there's a bit of kind of exhaustion of having to explain to people why they need to do something and then it changes and they have to re-explain it. I think, I think that's, I think, I think people are quite frustrated about that. I mean, in terms of behaviour, behaviour, I think, um, you know, after after speaking to people, it's 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 very very difficult to so, socially distance in a hospital, especially if the hospital is slightly older. I think it often depends on the estate of of an of a hospital, how the offices are set up. I mean, I was talking to somebody the other day who said that they think their office used to be a cupboard. So it's you know people don't have the space to spread out, and if you need to get access to a computer to look at patient notes urgently or um, prescribe something or whatever it must be you know you can imagine kind of a queue of, of, of nurses and doctors outside to try and get access to that computer or you know how many people are allowed into an office at one time I don't I don't think there's kind of a one-size-fits-all solution to social distancing in a in a you know acute hospital community community hospital whatever it is I think it very much depends on on the space available how the space is organized and kind of what what the priorities are for staff as well because um you know sometimes kind of accessing those notes or whatever it might be just can't wait because it's, it's it's you know it's too urgent um yeah i'm so, not sure how grounded in reality um kind of those requirements are <laughs> one of the um you know anecdotes are, 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 are terrible but uh, one of the stories that i heard um 
last week was um, an orthopedic, multidisciplinary orthopedic team having a face-to-face meet, -face meeting. Uh, uh, and um, uh, they may have all been wearing masks, I don't know, but anyway, they had a face-to-face -face meeting. They may have all been socially distanced and they had a face-to-face -face mm -hmm. meeting. Uh, and then um, one of them got COVID uh, and because they'd met in a, so they met in a non-clinical environment, so they weren't wearing full PPE. So, uh, and then one of them got COVID and then all of them or 12 of them had to go into, um, uh, um, uh, had to go into, uh, had to go into isolation. Uh, mm. And it's that kind of thing that identifies the difficulty of the of of, of this of the situation, um, and I just wonder if you had got any sense that people uh, that 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 within the NHS that kind of level of um, uh, awareness of how robust they need to be around you know um, uh, uh, not spending any time together with people uh, that they they didn't need to had sort of the penny had dropped because certainly I know at the centre there's a lot of concern as the test and trace programme, <clears throat> pardon me, gets going and you get similar sorts of situations where people meet in non-clinical areas, not wearing PPE, they may be doing social distancing but still they're in proximity with um, uh, with somebody for 15, 20 minutes if it's an MDT meeting uh, and then uh, or the like. Uh, and then one of them contracts COVID and suddenly that's your entire orthopaedics team out of the um, uh, out of the picture for a fortnight. Mm. I suppose in that situation, yeah, I, I think the, the, the testing would, would not testing the members of that team would that not have been would that not have been kind of quite beneficial into enabling some of them come back to work? Um, <coughs> but I think from speaking to staff, I don't, I think people up up until now, people have just been so focused on getting the day job done. Um, and I have, you know, I have spoken to people who said, you know, obviously it is concerning that people aren't really socially distancing at, at work. But I think it's, I think it's going to be incredibly difficult to change that behaviour. I mean, it's difficult in day-to-day -day life. We're not programmed to to kind of remember to keep that distance from people in queues. Like you have to constantly remind yourself. And I think it's the same in a work environment. And it's much more difficult in a work environment that really doesn't lend itself to, to that. Um, and um, I think, you know, sometimes having kind of MDT um, meetings are really, are really important. And I, I think, it's going to be kind of down to individual trusts, trusts and employers and kind of how to allow staff to have those important meetings, but in the, kind of the safest way possible. And yeah, I don't I, think there's a very easy solution to that. Well, it, indeed, and I'm, I'm glad you made that point because that's what I wanted to finish, finish, uh, finish on on this particular point. I mean, it sounds like I'm seeking to blame NHS staff. I, I'm not in any way. I'm, I'm just seeking to identify that it is what is happening. Staff are uh, catching COVID from other staff in social areas, and that is a that is a problem. Certainly, it seems to me, and the point we make in the edit in the editorial is that trust chief executives and their colleagues need to be really seriously auditing their space as much as possible and creating as much, um, uh, you know. Uh, ability to social distance as possible and part of that I would suggest is not bringing people who don't need to work uh, um, sort of 
people who are not doing uh, uh, clinical face-to-face -face stuff um, or, or uh, not bringing them back to work, keeping them working from yeah. keeping them working from home, so Absolutely. that um, admin and other areas was just a fewer people and be more uh, and be more space, and then also providing um, uh, um, uh, uh, people who are working face still giving them the ability to uh, communicate uh, in uh, using technology. And that sort of brings me on to, uh, so you can have your multidisciplinary meeting, but you don't all have to go into the cupboard. Uh, can I just add on the, the yeah. idea about, um, just before we move on to technology, about kind of very quickly just around not introducing things that are kind of counterintuitive. So I've kind of heard of some trusts closing down the canteen for example because they're worried about people sitting too close together but then that forces everybody to go and sit in much smaller spaces um, for example the mess um, which just exacerbates the situation so I think it's about not kind of panicking and thinking okay how do we stop people from congregating but actually giving people more space yeah. um, that's something that's just sort of that's come come up a few times. Yeah and, uh, but we we and I imagine Annabelle particularly be very interested to hear of um, um, uh, examples of, of, of best practice and and bad practice too mm. of of how people are addressing this particular issue because I think we're we're very aware that you know people are going to have to sort of rebuild hospitals uh, 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 in terms of service how they services are run but sometimes physically uh, 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 um, at least as a sort of uh, uh, maintenance type level rather than sort of new build type level so that services can actually run and the and the quicker that work is done the quicker the services can return because of the confidence around um, uh, reducing staff to staff infection uh, becomes greater there is the whole question of patient to patient uh, infection that we haven't really talked about uh, and um, uh, is certainly a subject we should turn to um, in another podcast. So moving quickly on to the technology side of things, I think this is this is not just technology. Uh, it's also moving um, uh, services out of hospitals um, uh, uh, into the into the community. But a lot of that will involve the use of Q, uh, uh, of technology here. Um, uh, we have seen, uh, for example, the growth in the use of the Attend Anywhere uh, software on, on secondary care for outpatient services. We've seen a complete revolution in, uh, in primary care uh, with the use of uh, digital consultation. Um, what's interesting is how much how much those services models will be treated as an emergency a uh, way of dealing with emergency or actually something that people were working to and they just got there a bit a bit faster and somebody was saying to me the other day and they were they were plucking the figures out of the air as I will rather than you know um, uh, uh, suggesting anything that's particularly true but if you said for example that before the pandemic one out of ten of every primary care consultation was remote in some kind of ways virtual in some kind of ways and now nine out of ten are in some kind of ways both of those things are not true but just for the moment so say 
you know, after the pandemic, it's not going or, you know, as we go forward, it's not going to go back. It's not going to stay at nine. It's not going to go back to one. Now, how do you move to a sort of um, to the situation where the services that should have moved uh, and were in the process of doing it, and it was just a question of time, do uh, retain uh, to uh, remain virtually virtual and uh, those that need to be taking place face to face really need to be taken face do so in a in a safe environment and uh, Nick uh, you're our technology correspondent um, uh, um, so I'd be interested in your views but I'm particularly uh, I suppose the thing that's in my mind is uh, the financial flows that are associated with um, um, uh, digital uh, um, interactions, uh, both in primary care and in and in secondary care. So at the moment, we're still to a certain extent in a sort of emergency mode, uh, and people aren't worrying too much about the money side of things for once in the NHS. But going forward, aligning financial flows to activity that takes place in a virtual way will be very important. Is that any part of the conversation um, uh, at the moment? I know it has been, thanks to our, our friends Babylon, it has been to, to a certain extent in primary care, but what about in general? I've not heard that that's uh, um, a huge conversation point at the moment. Um, I think it will be, we're still some months away from that really um, becoming uh, coming onto the agenda. Um, I think at the moment the the focus is is very much just to to roll out as much as you can uh, d digitally um, and worry about the sort of cost later. And I think you know from speaking to a couple of trusts and CCG leads, they've said that they've sort of enjoyed having the almost almost enjoyed having the freedom to not think so much about the the financial side of doing these kind of innovations. Um, so at the moment, I don't get a sense that that conversation about uh, money and how we're going to uh, align what we're spending with the activity that we're doing how that's you know I'm not, how that going, is going to work I think we're still maybe six to nine months away from that I think this financial year really is going to be almost sort of a, a write-off in terms of thinking about the money from the tech point of view but then it will be interesting to see after that um, what kind of direction is given by the centre by NHSX um, uh, in terms of the the finances, because obviously it can't go on forever. Um, but then I would have thought a lot of this tech isn't necessarily the most expensive tech to to use. You know, it's not like we're talking about buying lots of new electronic patient record systems or uh, electronic document management systems. At the end of the day, a lot of this virtual consultations that are used just with you know simple video video or um, telephone software, which yes. which really is at the cheaper end of the the tech sector. Yes, the, 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 the that well-known piece of new technology, the telephone, <laughs> indeed, has, has certainly um, uh, uh, been um, uh, used uh, a lot more. Um, uh, just one final point on the technology. We saw a sort of basically national instruction uh, to use the Attend Anywhere uh, software for um, uh, virtual outpatient uh, appointments, which uh, uh, you know, I understand. Put a number of suppliers' noses out of joint. Uh, um, uh, um, are we expecting any other similar kind of mandation uh, that particular 
services uh, must be removing uh, must be moved virtual. In other words, that, that you know their expectation will the, the expectation would be that these services would be delivered on a virtual way, and perhaps some kind of financial incentive would be given to do that, or that there are any particular specific bits of software or particular types of software which um, uh, you know the centre is really pushing people uh, uh, to adopt. Mm. I don't know. I, that's a tough one. I, I'm not sure I could offer up any meaningful um, guesses there. I haven't seen anything uh, anything like the sort of major attend anywhere rollout um, in terms of other sort of types of software or um, pieces of kits um, or um, companies that we should be using. That that seems to be the only one that's come at the moment. So uh, I will have to just defer and say. We'll have to wait and see because I'm not sure I can think of any off the top of my head that that would um, come anywhere near the the rollout of the attend anywhere, for example. Okay. Well, again, if anyone has uh, any uh, ideas on uh, uh, systems that the uh, service uh, should be uh, a rolling out or is rolling out, then um, I'm sure Nick would be very uh, keen to take your uh, call or uh, email or direct message. Um, so, just onto the final point point of uh, of the uh, of the editorial just looking forward uh if i put my sort of policy nerd hat on uh which i never really take off uh but but um uh, to, to just to, let, let's talk a little bit about legislation so if you cast your mind back to before the pandemic uh there was a promise in the tory party manifesto to introduce legislation should the nhs want it the NHS does want it, um, uh, legislation which would uh, facilitate the move towards integrated uh, 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 care. NHS England went through a consultation process and published um, some uh, uh, recommendations uh, which the government more or less endorsed during the election process. Now, uh, before the pandemic uh, arose. We were expecting about this time to begin to see the draft legislation that would maybe have been introduced for the autumn term of the Parliament. Now, whether or that will still happen, we don't know. I believe that those uh, at the top of the NHS hope it will uh, still happen and hope it will still happen to that timetable. But I think we'll, uh, um, we'll have to wait and see. Uh, in the meantime, certain sort of the, the general thrusts uh, of, of that legislation, a lot of it is sort of happening anyway. And the uh, NHS England have been using the cover of the pandemic, if you like, to just get on with it. So, for example, as I say uh, in the editorial, it's very clear that it is over for clinical commissioning groups. There have been a couple of brave attempts in HSJ lately to sort of suggest that CCGs were a vital part of the pandemic response. And while I don't for one second doubt that there are a number of organisation individuals who, who played a very important part, broadly they've been left on the sidelines. Their powers were taken away from them and taken up to a national level when a level four emergency was declared. And regardless of what kind of level we might move down to, they're not coming back. Uh, they are, um, uh, um, whatever the law might say, those powers uh, will be fed through to developing STP, uh, 
uh, SDPs and developing integrated care systems or the kind of leadership cells that are being developed in London and Manchester, for example, both of which uh, uh, we have written about. Now, again, this was happening anyway. Anyone who's reading HSJ was be fully aware of that, but a bit like the use of digital technologies, it just sped up. I think, and I'll finish on this point, uh, Annabelle, what is interesting is whether the legislative reform, if and when it comes, whether it will be expanded. You see a lot of commentary on the Tory newspapers uh, and uh, uh, websites and things with, uh, which I hang out on a lot because um, uh, they're the government of, of power, talking about the response uh, showing the uh, shortcomings of the NHS as a bureaucracy. Uh, and there are two particular uh, sort of things. One is uh, the failure of the public health system. Now, we have known, for example, that Simon Stevens has expressed concern about the public health system long before the pandemic came out and uh, suggested that the NHS might just need to step in and do things that uh, Public Health England and local authorities weren't doing. So uh, we know this government likes to fall down on the NHS. Might we see public health return to the NHS's control. And talking of control, the other thing that gets talked about is um, uh, putting, a, establishing much greater direct control, a bit like, you know, in other words, before the um, uh, Lansley reforms of um, uh, NHS England by the Secretary of State. Uh, now that is a very double-edged sword as everyone listening that podcast, this podcast will know, because if you're in charge, then you're responsible. But I think ministers and others close to the senior the government may think, well, people are going to blame us anyway, so we might as well be in charge. And if we want to achieve the things we want to achieve, which are building things and hiring people, that's what they care about, because that's what they believe, with some reason, the public care about. Uh, as opposed to the more, shall we say, as, as they might see it, esoteric things that the NHS cares about, like outcomes, then better that we have direct control. And it will be very, very interesting to see whether uh, legislation, if and when it does come, uh, is expanded to allow them to achieve the, those goals. So that's it, Annabelle. That's my, my run through of um, what I've learned in the past few weeks. Very good. Bum a bumper edition of the podcast for everybody this week. Um, that's fantastic. Thank you, Alistair. Thank you, Nick, as well. Um, and I'm just going to remind all listeners that the HSJ Health Check podcast is available every week on the hsj.co.uk website and across all the main podcast channels. Please, please do subscribe and share and get in touch if there's something you'd like to see us talk about. Thank you so much for listening.